friends, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up for liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white Christians who are realizing that to follow Jesus in this time and in this country means to listen to, learn from, and join in the struggle against racism and white supremacy. As people engage in anti-racist work across the country, we know that white supremacy is highly interconnected with Christian supremacy. And that's why white Christians have a special responsibility to do this work to challenge ourselves and each other to look at how our scriptures can be used as resources for liberation and not for deeper domination. We would love to hear what you think and especially welcome feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Margaret Ernst and I'm involved in various struggles for immigrant and racial justice in Nashville, Tennessee, where I attend Divinity School and also serve as a student pastor at a congregational church. I'm a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice in Nashville, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. The music you hear throughout the podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are so grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm recording from an empty classroom in Vanderbilt Divinity School, and it's the week of Halloween and All Souls Day and All Saints Day in Christian tradition. I'll admit I pretty much missed out on Halloween this year, but I hope that you've found some way to honor this change in season and the thin layer between the living and the dead that becomes so apparent in this time. The last time I shared for the podcast was two weeks ago, and I was preparing for counteractions in Shelbyville, Tennessee, a small city southeast of Nashville, where this Saturday a White Lives Matter rally was held, by the same white supremacist groups that came to Charlottesville, Virginia. Though many of them are neo-Nazis, these groups are born and bred in the USA. And rallies organized by them are popping up not only in Tennessee and in the South, but across the country. I was scared as hell. I wasn't sure if someone was going to die or if there might be a massacre or even what a victory could possibly look like when hundreds of neo-Nazis were gathered together. It was breaking my heart that we even had to respond to these folks at all, but I knew we had to and that it mattered, even if it made me sick. On Saturday, the counter-protesters outnumbered those who showed up for the White Lives Matter rally. And nearby, Folks gathered to eat pozole, a Mexican stew made with dried corn kernels and pork. The pozole was simmered for hours the night before by Latinx women in the community. 
while counter-protesters drowned out the chants of blood and soil with shouts of Black Lives Matter. A few blocks away, a multi-racial group of Shelbyville community members joined with others from out of town to dance and build relationship in an act of existence as resistance. This overwhelming response in Shelbyville led the white supremacists to cancel, cancel their rally in the next city they planned to bring their terror into, in Murfreesboro, where 500 counter-protesters were gathered in a square to unwelcome them. What happened on Saturday here in Tennessee really was a victory, and it's important to claim it. And at the same time, it's important to put it in context of the struggles against the larger structures and institutions of racism that look so different from white guys holding makeshift shields chanting blood and soil. The Black Lives Matter chapter in Nashville put out a statement that can help us contextualize these rallies happening across the country and to help us keep our eyes on the prize. Their statement says, the white supremacists gathered this weekend are at work in these systems year round. Gatherings like what has occurred in Shelbyville and Murfreesboro are used as scapegoats for institutions and white America at large. It be can become a chance to point fingers at the obvious racists. In reality, it is both the practice of overt and covert racism that makes these violent and hateful rallies of Klansmen and neo-Nazis possible. The statement continues, saying, it is white America who invited them in, and it is white America who has the responsibility to see them out. Taking the time to question your fears, unpack the ways you uphold the pillars of white supremacy, and continue the difficult task of dismantling the many institutions in place that reinforce white supremacy long after the rallies are gone is the type of solidarity needed in these times. As we prepare to dive into today's commentary, feel the ground beneath your feet. Let yourself take a pause. And notice one thing you can hear and see and smell and taste. We're here in 2017 together, here in a trickle in the long, long river of movement and struggle for freedom and liberation for all. It's a river that goes back to the time that Christian scriptures come from, and long before that. I'm going to talk about the New Testament reading for this week from Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. The passage is short, so I'll read it in full here. The text reads, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and therefore do whatever they, eat, they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. 
They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a lot going on here. And like with all of Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees and scribes, there's a long legacy of reading these texts to support anti-Semitism openly or covertly. If you want resources to help you read against that history, I highly recommend getting the Jewish Annotated New Testament. It's full of commentaries on the text by Jewish scholars who put these conflicts in context of the text's Jewish background. These scholars can help us see how even readings of the New Testament for social justice can still carry strong undertones of anti-Judaism. These scholars can be a resource for us to find new ways of seeing and reading past old and violent histories of interpretation. For instance, today's passage serves as an introduction to a litany of woes that Jesus said to have made against the scribes and the Pharisees, other Jewish leaders in his time. Without naming Jesus' context as a fellow Jew and a rival teacher who is actually deeply invested in Judaism, these passages, like many in Matthew, look so and deeply anti-Semitic. And as we've seen in many of our commentaries about Matthew this season, it can be frustrating to work with these passages to draw out what is life-giving from them when we're aware of the great dangers that they pose and the harm that they do. So let's think together about the moment of time that they speak into. Matthew's gospel is written at a time of great trauma and fragmentation and reorganization of Jewish life in occupied Judea. It was after the destruction of the second temple, and it was a time when people were asking, what does it mean to continue to be a people and to honor God's call to justice and righteousness after such an event like that, after the major symbol of our faith has been destroyed? People were led to many different kinds of answers about how to remain faithful to God and to different ways of explaining what God was doing in their time. The answer for Matthew's community, Jewish folks who proclaimed the resurrected Jesus as Messiah, was one of these answers. And it's Roman imperialism that is the background that created the pressurized situation for the conflicts between Matthew's community and the Pharisees, scribes, and other Jewish leaders. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as the agent of God that will save Israel in this time of trauma. And that was in subversion of the dominant claims that it was the emperor who was ruler and God's agent. In this moment of the text, Matthew's Jesus is instructing his disciples about what it means for them to be leaders in this particular messianic movement. And he's using the behavior of the Pharisees and the scribes as a counterexample. We don't really have much from the Pharisees' perspective to talk back to us and represent what they were really about. 
And so there's little in the historical record about the Pharisees besides what we get from these polemical texts in the New Testament. That one-sided story means that the word Pharisee has entered our modern parlance to mean a self-righteous person or a hypocrite. Even though Matthew's gospel pushes against Roman imperialism by presenting Jesus, a Jewish carpenter, as king, he also used some of the, t- some of the tools of the empire himself with the prejudices that he writes into the text against others. Can we read Matthew's prejudices against themselves, seeing what, lay ma- what may lie here for a vision of community beyond the master's tools? Let's push Matthew a little bit in that direction. In the instruction here to Jesus' disciples, we see how much it mattered that Jesus' community act not only different from the Pharisees, but distinctly different from the Roman imperial order. When Jesus tells them to be servants, the Greek word used is diakonos, simply one who executes the demands of others. It's the same word used in Matthew 20, 26, when Jesus is telling his disciples to not act the way that Roman leadership does. He says in that verse, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. The passage for this week continues this conversation about what it means for Jesus' disciples to be great in a time where greatness was marked by characteristics of tyranny. Jesus' movement and Matthew's community also must have been full of people who were trying to look impressive or pious or have just the right interpretation, the behavior that we see the Pharisees accused of. And so what does it really mean to be diakonos or a servant to the work of liberation? It's not to use this text to pride ourselves as Christians and Jesus followers but to hear in it how Jesus is warning his community about the ways we can lose sight of the challenging and complex work of God's plan for liberation, especially if we're doing that work only to impress others. The disciples get a warning here to not do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Later in the chapter, in chapter 23, Matthew's Jesus rages against focusing on the details of the material stuff of religion, rather than the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Jesus says, it is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. In this tirade, he's not alone by any means. In fact, he stands squarely within the line of prophetic critique from his own scriptures. The prophet Jeremiah rages against priests who took advantage of their position to make money off of the people. In Isaiah 58, the prophet critiques folks for doing spiritual practices without those practices being linked to the practices of justice-making. Is it not this fast I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? That's Isaiah 58. And so within a similar stream of critique, Matthew's Jesus rages against practitioners of religion who he thought ignored the heart of the law, justice, and righteousness. It's a critique that all of our religious institutions are subject to and that Christianity is certainly guilty of. 
Instead, Jesus proclaims a vision of service and humility as leadership, a vision that is first against the hierarchical order of the leadership of Rome, and second, against exalting oneself for doing the right thing. This is not the servant leadership he's talking about that we see proclaimed as a more spiritual way of being a CEO in corporate America. It's also not the kind of service that requires us to disavow ourselves if we're already oppressed. I think it's the service instead of being an accomplice and being accountable to the vision of those who are most hurting from violence and oppression, executing the demands of others. It's being a deacon to movement for a different way from the ways of empire and violence. For white people, and for especially white middle-class folks, today this vision of leadership is to be led by the demands of others, to work in service to the vision and organizing of poor people, black people, brown people, people in the global south, and not to lord ourselves and our own plans and visions over others, or to focus so much on getting the credit that we lose sight of the work. This kind of humble service is also not about self-deprecation to the point of self-hatred. It's not about hiding your lamp behind a bushel. But it's about knowing that you're so beloved to God that you don't need your work to be broadcast to be valuable. We can get really anxious about looking like heroes, about wanting to be seen doing justice. We can exalt ourselves for our contributions for justice and want to be the ones in charge of social change. But often this leads to stalled efforts because when we're trying to do things on our own and don't follow the leadership of those feeling the pain, things don't work. But what if our acts for liberation we're not meant to be seen. What if they're done not meant to be broadcast to the world? What if we say we are willing and ready to be of service to the movements already here, led by people of color, by working class and poor people? What if we say we are willing and ready to be of service to the stream of movement already flowing, to God's work of liberation that is already happening? In the past few years, I've noticed that mainline white churches with declining membership have had fuller pews during the weekdays when they offered their building space for racial justice meetings than they do on Sundays. I'm remembering last year there was a meeting at a church in Nashville where white folks were gathered to, le to learn about the Vision for Black Lives, a policy platform put out by Black Lives Matter and other organizations involved with the movement for black lives. It was a Tuesday night and the building was overflowing with young people and queer folks, the people who many churches struggle to get into worship on Sunday or who outright reject. There are so many ways to be of service, to be of deacon to liberation. 
When these contributions come from a place of love, abundance, and humility, the Holy Spirit does wonderful things with them. The pictures that are coming out of Shelbyville from this weekend are of counter-protesters outnumbering the white supremacists, and it's an awesome picture. But this weekend, some of the most gracious acts of holy resistance and radical love in Shelbyville, Tennessee, are the acts that won't be seen or talked about. Three weeks ago, a Shelbyville resident named David started standing with signs at the intersection of the boulevard where the white nationalists planned to gather. People began honking and honking in support. A few more people joined him the next day, and the next day a few more. An eighth grader, the son of Latinx immigrants who work at a chicken plant in Shelbyville, worked for weeks to plan these vigils and the community cookout to invite members of his community to come out boldly and courageously against racism. On Saturday, the day of the rally, street medics from across the country worked their butts off to be able to respond if people got hurt. A street chaplaincy team helped bring emotional grounding and blankets when folks were cold or needed someone to talk to when things got tense. A local pastor made his church available as a sanctuary if people needed to evacuate or things became unsafe. And a man who lives just a block from where the neo-Nazis rallied and where the counter-protests took place, he brought out a sheet the day of the counter-protests and spray-painted BLM on it, Black Lives Matter, and hung it outside his door. As people went home, there was aftercare held at a church where those who couldn't come to the rally played their own role, too. They cut flowers from their gardens and gave hand massages and made chili and held space to listen to those who had come out to stand up against the white nationalists. There are so many ways to resist, an infinite number of ways to show up. So many things to do with our buildings, with our spiritual practices, and our varied skills and gifts that can help us to be deacons to liberation. Sometimes we can be so focused on doing just the right big program or making just the right statement that others see that we are hoping to get credit for. And we can miss the chance to do the smaller things that matter. It's not just the job of one person or one faith community or one social justice organization to move us forward into freedom. And yet we all have a role to play. Thanks be to God. My suggested action for you this week is to take time to think about the practices that can help you sustain your action. What practices can help you be sustained in service for liberation for the long haul, not just for one rally or one campaign, but for a lifetime of many seasons of being a deacon to justice? Spiritual practices can be used not to demonstrate our goodness or our wokeness, but to give us the fuel to keep going and to keep showing up with humility and with the willingness to make mistakes. 
that can help us keep coming back to the work because our souls and our lives depend on it. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include resources at the end to help you find practices like this and other suggested actions that you can take along with those practices. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Till next time, may you be encouraged, fortified, challenged, and consoled in walking out of white supremacy and into salvation and liberation and discerning the wisdom and the power of a liberating God in your life. Build